having a wonderful day welcome to drboystv.com the home for intelligent black people my name is dr boyce watkins and uh i want to say hello to everybody as you come in uh today we're going to talk about diversity and i'm and i'm literally going to start by uh, asking our panelists a basic question the audience a basic question is diversity dead a lot of you saw what happened to dr claudine gay at harvard university and uh this has really been part of a bigger cultural war about diversity equity and inclusion programs and just sort of pushing black folks out of uh, majority white institutions and uh, just what that looks like and what the battle plan needs to be for us as a community. Now, uh, as we move forward, do me a favor. First and foremost, give me a yes. If you can hear us. OK, let us know that the audio is good. Also hit the thumbs up button, thumbs up, share, subscribe. And I'm going to introduce our guest. Uh, the first special guest is. Dr. Chitachi Iwu, uh, who is uh, a professor of uh, communications, a PhD in communications and mass media. And she is super smart and on top of her game. And she also partners with us in the Black Business School. How are you doing, Dr. Tachi? I'm fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, yes. And you're, you're media company. You're the founder of, I, I, I wrote this down. Uh, what the founder of Indie Soup Media, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So shout out to Black Owned Media. So I know y'all know about Club Shay Shay, but y'all need to know about Club Club Dr. Tashi at Indie Soup Media. So we gotta we gotta connect all the Black Owned Media platforms. And uh, and so the other uh, person that I get an opportunity to speak with, who I literally talked to uh, five minutes ago in the kitchen, is my lovely wife, Dr. Alicia Watkins, who is a uh, a, a a licensed therapist and full professor of social work and uh, the author of several books. Uh, how are you doing today, babe? I'm doing great. How are you feeling, boys? How are you doing today? I'm feeling good. I'm feeling are very you? good. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm on top of the world. On top. On top of my game. And uh, and so so I'm gonna tell you. I I feel I probably feel better than Dr. Claudine Gay's feeling right now. That poor thing. She <laughs> she. Uh, do you know Dr. Claudine Gay? How many of y'all follow? Give me a yes in the chat if y'all followed uh, what happened with with Dr. Claudine Gay at Harvard University. Uh, she was literally. Uh, it's it's amazing. She has at least a couple of distinctions, right? She's the first Black female president of Harvard, and she also has the shortest tenure in the history of Harvard which is a long history. You're talking about over 300 and something years. I don't know how many presidents Harvard has had. It had to have been like, what, 50 or 60 or something by now. Um, yeah. I'm going to literally Google that. Uh, and so she literally has the distinction of having the shortest tenure in the history of all Harvard University presidents, which is just, I mean, just so, I don't know, Dr. Tashi, I, I'm, I'm kind of annoyed by that. That kind of makes me mad. How do you feel about it? Uh, yeah, I, I'm annoyed, but am I surprised? No. Not, not at all, not at all. This to me is to be expected. Um, I think that I, this, this has been going on, of course, on social media back and forth and back and forth. And so I was trying to reserve saying anything except one person, Lavia Ajayi, made a, a comment about it. So there was somebody who uh, came underneath and said, well, hopefully she will be able to, one of the HBCUs will take her in. And this is, this is interesting because, you know, as a person that has both attended HBCUs and PWIs and taught at HBCUs and PWIs, I'm looking at it from both someone who has been a student and somebody who has been faculty. What we don't want to do, and this is not to say that we should not make space for people at our institutions, we absolutely could. And I think that would be wonderful. But what we don't want to be is your second choice. What we need to start doing is to appreciate the institutions that we have, appreciate our institutions. And rather than make that, um, you know, I, I have no other choice, 
that should be our collective first choice. And I understand it's harder to do uh, to do something like that because the academy in, in general, and you guys know, you can't just go and work where, where the heck you want to work. The, you have There has to be a job there for you. It's a process. There are way more PhDs than there actually are tenure track positions. So I know it's very nuanced, but I say that to say that I, I think that sometimes there's the, we make these decisions of the spaces that we want to exist in. And then when these spaces act as they are designed to, which is to be exclusionary, exclusionary, I don't think she was. A, I don't think she was surprised. Maybe she was surprised it happened this quickly. But I, I think we need to start to look at what are the alternatives. We've been sold this dream, especially when you get your PhD. Of the world is your oyster. You're making a contribution to your field. You can be anywhere. And if if you're like us, you can't necessarily. Does that mean you shouldn't fight? Does that mean that you should not uh, put up a good fight? No, absolutely. But I submit that many of us are tired of doing that, which is why I, I, I can imagine she didn't stay and fight. Mm, interesting. Okay. So uh, she didn't stay and fight. Okay. So do you think, um, you know what, uh, Dr. Alicia, my wife, it feels funny calling you Dr. Alicia, but that I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to call you Dr. Alicia. Um, so what, how did you feel when you saw what happened with Dr. Gay? I think you and I, you and I sit and we do our pillow talks and we sit and we, we kind of speculate on the conspiracy theories and, and what we think is going to happen next. And, and when she took that job, I kind of felt sorry for her. I kind of mm -hmm. felt, excuse me, I'm sorry. I got hiccups. I kind of felt like, man, she's going to get it. You know, like, like sometimes I feel like we get sold. It's like when I told our baby the other day, I said, a lot of people, they get sold something that they think is a dream, but really they're being led into a nightmare. I would never want to, I would not want to be president of Harvard for a billion dollars a year. That sounds like a horrible job, but, but that's now I wouldn't have said that 20 years ago. Uh, what are your thoughts? This, this, you know, I am in academia currently. I think apart from the two of you, my full-time job is at a PWI and it's a triggering experience to me. <clears throat> to observe yet another <clears throat> Black female faculty member who has worked hard, published, done a lot of work in terms of scholarly achievements, wants to give back to uh, the student body population and want to make differences and wants to genuinely <clears throat> embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion and do something with their positions of power. And I see yet again, another instance where in those efforts, she was labeled uh, incompetent, um, plagiaristic, uh, scary black woman who needs to be chopped down a notch. And it's funny because this is happening. I mean, for me personally, I'm going through my five year review and, you know, I have I have a mentor who I talk to once a month and I process all my feelings about some individuals in academia who I felt have treated me with microaggressions and all of these things that I experience. But going through my five year review simultaneously as Dr. Gay <laughs> resigns and steps down in her position, I got to tell you, I couldn't sleep. I was up all night and it surprised me because I'm a therapist. I'm supposed to understand. I'm supposed to know. But it was a triggering experience for me. I mean, it 
I spent, I just want to say, I spent five months working at a university in a country where everybody looked like me. Everybody got me. Not only did they look like me, but they looked like me and they had similar interests that I had. Um, this is at the University of Guyana when I did my Fulbright scholarship. And it was the very first time in my life I was actually felt included. And I didn't realize how much I felt like an oddball. Nobody got me. No one understood me. Not even students in the classroom. Not all students. But there were certain students in the classroom that challenged me all the time. And, and, and it got to the point where it was like some of the other black students in the class would be like, why are y'all, what's wrong with y'all? You know, I mean, it became like an, an issue in the classroom with students, with some of my colleagues, with administration. So it just goes to show, and it's nothing unusual about my institution, right? And these are, um, it's not everybody, of course, so I can't make blanket statements, of course, but it's enough for a situation like this to be triggering to me. And I have, I am a pretty stable person, but even still, I'm still, I'm still affected by this in a way where it had kind of an emotional and psychological impact on me in terms of racism and think about it like racism in universities it's not an insulate isolated issue it reflects a larger systemic issue in our society so and it's and there are people who get it you know who say okay we're going to address racism by having diversification in our positions of power within academia and other sectors like there have been people who've made these efforts but it just seems like this was a big kind of kick in the butt of any sort of effort of, what is it? Diversity, equity, not equal, but equity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. I don't know how um, Harvard <laughs> plays into this and they ha we have a long way to go before we can even get there. Mm. Uh, everybody, yeah. in case you just came in, I'm talking to Dr. Alicia and Dr. Tashi, and we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and uh, not just what happened at Harvard University with Claudine Gay, but also just what's happening around the country. Um, I'm going to do a quick little straw poll with everybody in here and ask you all a question. First off, I'm going to ask you, can you hit the thumbs up button? Because that really helps the algorithm so that we can get some Black-owned media up in here. Y'all know that Black folks, we, we want to tell each other the truth. Cat uh, Williams ain't the only one that can tell the truth. Uh, but also, number two, we need uh, to have uh, conversations that belong to us, uh, Black-owned conversations. So, uh, so you you're hitting the like button, share button, thumbs up button, sharing it on your social media really makes a difference. Second thing I'm going to ask everybody is this. How many of you feel like you've experienced the discrimination on your job? Give me a yes in the chat if you feel like you've been in a situation where a white person got an opportunity that you deserved or they got uh, an offer, a job offer that, that you should have gotten that you were qualified for, or they got a raise in a promotion and you didn't get one, or you were mistreated on your job when they found out you were the radical black person. How many of y'all went through this? Give me a yes. I want to see the yeses come through. And the reason I ask y'all this question is because this is a universal experience for so many people, I think, Dr. Tashi. I, I, I feel like this is one of those things where it's almost like when it rains outside, everybody in the city 
knows that it rained. You know, if you're all in the same city, you're all like, yeah, I saw the thunderstorm too. And so systematic racism, that's what that is. That's a system. It's a systematic mm -hmm. problem that mm -hmm. systematically affects lots and lots of people, just like a big thunderstorm that covers up, up the whole city of Detroit or something like that. And nobody really does anything about it. Nobody cares. We just kind of grin and bear it. And then they sort of keep doing it. And it just, you know, and, and it got to the point, Dr. Tashi, where I became I just don't I'm I'm a, I'm a skeptic of DEI period diversity equity and inclusion not because I don't believe in it not because I won't support it I'm a bit I'm a beneficiary of it to some extent but I don't think that I think there's something about either human nature or the nature of 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 whites in America as a collective not individual white people I don't I ain't sitting around mad at white people I'm not I don't, I don't get mad at people I just tell the truth uh, but there's something there that just says that they're not that serious. They're not that serious about this integration thing, and 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 we're not even benefiting from this integration thing. Uh, what do you think, Doctor uh, Doctor Tashi? Do you think DEI is just like sort of this big big racial illusion that we're <laughs> this fantasy that we're holding on to? <laughs> oh, they have won a Tony Award for the best performance in in, in business and university campuses, etc. It's, I think it. it it needs to happen and it needs to exist because quote equity would not happen otherwise because people don't do things on their own of their own goodwill. Sorry, not in America. That generally does not happen, but it does it work. I, I, I think that's another question and no, because often it's for show. You saw the biggest outpouring of this right after the murder of George Floyd. And then everybody was committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it was a buzzword. But were they really serious about it? No, because what, what happens? All you have to do is look at the people that are the DEI officers in any organization. It checks off a box, right? And so I don't want to make a blanket statement that no company is serious about that because I think that would be disingenuous of me to say. But by and large, when you look at, at least the ones I've seen, when you look at these efforts, they either lump it on the, the quote, oppressed to be responsible for taking themselves out of a condition that they did not create, or it's really just for show to say that they did something. And then, well, what's our next thing? Ah, Hispanic Heritage Month. So to me, it's, dis, it's, it's disingenuous in a sense. Can, can it work on paper? Yes. But people have to be actually committed to that. And, and why I think many people are not committed is because they're scared. There is such a scarcity mindset that there is not enough for everyone. And those that are in power have to maintain power by any means necessary. So if I give you equity, if I give you inclusion, there's none left for me. Never mind that you had equity and inclusion and it's the system you created. But somehow you are afraid that you will lose everything. So I don't try and really make a real effort to make this an institution. Another thing on the other side of it is I think sometimes people don't know how to do it. Things have been such rubbish business as usual that to sit there and actually change a system that was built like that seems like an arduous task. So I think the other end of that is that people simply don't know how. Even and you can't just say, well, hire somebody black. Some black people don't even know how to fix the problem. So I think it's larger than just the surface. Hmm. Well, you know, um, I'm, I'm gonna tell you, uh, Dr. Alicia, I, I kind of feel like, you know, I, you and I were talking today. Um, I, you, you know, I had that meeting with Dr. Ken Harris, who runs the Black Business League, and Dr. Harris, 
is on this. He's a brilliant guy, PhD from uh, in economics from uh, Michigan State. Everybody should know about Dr. Harris and the Black Business League. They embody the principles of W. E. B. Du Bois. I'm sorry, I'm not. I'm sorry, Booker T. Washington. Not yeah. w. E. B. Sorry, Booker <laughs> T. Washington. My bad. Um, that's a big mistake. <laughs> Like, like I say Tupac and I said Biggie instead. You can't do that. You can't, I can't replace Pac with Puffy. That, uh, anyway, so <laughs> so so uh, Booker T, Booker T, y'all. And uh, and one thing that Dr. Harris was very passionate about, it, uh, you know, it, uh, addressing today when we, he and I were talking, is that Booker T, uh, it was was he believes Booker T was deliberately vilified in the black community because Booker T according to Dr. Harris and, and according to history, in my opinion, was a guy who said, look, we don't need all y'all integration. We don't need to be, we don't need y'all giving us jobs and bringing us into your institutions. We're going to go build skills. We're going to go build buildings. We're going to create universities like Tuskegee. And we got this. We, we can build our own. We don't really need all this integration as fantasy that W.E.B. Du Bois and all these other people are talking about. We want to own the institution. We want to run the university. We want to run the corporation. Um, do you think that maybe that means we we have it wrong? You know, I know that your father, uh, uh, the, the great Dr. Francis Taylor, spent 30-something years at Tuskegee, and he wanted to be there. It wasn't like, oh, well, I can't get a, can't get a job at a white school, so I'm going to go work at a black school. Now, he didn't. No, Dr. Taylor got offered positions at, a white, at white schools and said, no, no, no. Why would I want to be around people who don't like me when I could be around people who appreciate and respect me? And he spent 30 something years to these instances, worked there till he died. So, so tell me, do you think that maybe we just have it backward? That maybe chasing this DEI fantasy, which fails repeatedly, is just a lost cause and a failure for the black community. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the authenticity of these efforts and kind of the deep city seeded systemic issues in academia was one of the reasons why my dad deliberately said, oh, all of these positions, I think Boston University and um, uh, Louisville University and all these places offered him jobs and he deliberately turned them down for more money. They were gonna pay him more money than what the HBCU was able to offer him. And he said, no, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna dedicate the rest of my life with the people whom I'm connected to. So he just decided that that's where he was going to put his talent. And, um, and you know, I can totally understand, but having gone, gone through it myself, I totally understand why he is, um, why he went that direction. And of course he mentored me a lot and it was nice to have him when I was at Florida State and at my home institution, it was nice to have him. I could call him anytime and like, cry and scream on the phone about frustrations I had in academia. And since he went through it, he was able to guide me. And I just feel awful because I think that that situation is so unique. So I think this brings us to question, is it even possible to really have inclusiveness in our country? Is this even possible? And I think that's always been the debate among individuals like a Booker T. Washington and a W.E.B. Du Bois. And all throughout history, when we talk about the problems of Black people in America, this has always been a debate. And there have been moments where you can see glimpses of inclusion 
and it ends up being an illusion, <laughs> an illusion of inclusion because of the scrutiny that you're under. It's like you, it's, there's nothing more psychologically damaging to, to be in a space where you're not seen by who and what you are. If you make a mistake, there's always going to be somebody that's going to hold it against you as if you are a mistake. And that kind of pressure, it just, you know, it just, it, it really makes me in this moment, I feel very cynical. I've been in academia post uh, PhD for about 15 years now. And I'm, I'm very cynical. I don't know. Like, I feel like there is no hope. I, I would love to see the, my generation of children that I have right now, I would love for these Gen, Gen Z's to be able to grow up in more inclusive environments, you know, knowing that we set the tone, our generation has set the tone for the next generation to come up where we have this kumbaya moment. But I'm also seeing, you know, Donald Trump, <laughs> you know, create some headway. I'm also seeing factors that led to Dr. Gay being you know, uh, forced to step down as president, those forces is a counterforce to anything in terms of diversity. I don't care about diversity. Diversity is one small step in inclusion, but I don't even think people are just like, I don't know. I don't even want it. So I, I don't know. I, I want to be hopeful, but I'm not. Yeah. Mm. Well, well, by the way, everybody, uh, please hit the thumbs up button, thumbs up, share, subscribe. You're watching DrBoysTV.com, the home for intelligent black people. You can find this podcast on Spotify. Uh, just go to Spotify, look up my name, Boyce Watkins, and me and my wife and all of our friends, uh, like Dr. Tashi, uh, are going to be on there. Uh, all the content that you see on this platform, we put it up there so you have other ways to check it out. And uh, also, uh, do uh, Dr. Alicia's website is coachingwithdralicia.com. She's a excuse me, a licensed therapist and a full professor of social work, and uh, she's these clients on an individual and collective basis you can check that out also everybody needs to go follow dr tashi dr tashi is she's a serious professional she is good at what she does she has this awesome journalist voice like she sounds really like a news lady and it's awesome it's so cool and uh it, which tells me she's super well trained at what she does so if you're looking for well-trained people smart people that are good at what they do check out dr tashi you can follow her she's right there there's her instagram i'm gonna leave it on the screen everybody give me a guess if you're gonna go follow dr tashi i want us to be intentional about this uh we, we i don't want this to happen by accident i want us to promote and elevate the people that we need to hear from so um okay so so you know I, yeah i i think when when i think about what happened with dr gay dr tashi that it was it was kind of like this sort of sinister thing where you had, you know, this whole scenario where, where um, Dr. Gay was not just removed, but she was discredited, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of like, it wasn't just like, we don't want you in this, this position. It was like, we're going to push you out of the position and ruin your reputation at the same time. That offended me, Dr. Tachi, because I don't know if anybody's read Dr. Claudine Gay's resume, but... I mean, this lady is an is extraordinary scholar, extremely good at what she did. I think she went to Stanford and did the Stanford-Harvard thing yeah, and all that. Wait, but wait, boys, her her research is on racial and economic disparities. Oh, oh, like wow. Yeah, I think she focuses on po politics, mm -hmm. political science, mm -hmm. political attitudes and behavior, something like that. And I was like, whoa, she is the subject of her dissertation. Like, Absolutely. So she needs to go study her 
But don't you always, don't you do in the end, like study yourself? But yeah, that's what the ironic part about it. You think she'd be the best person for that position, but no, she she studies politics. Wow. <laughs> and wow. she cannot play the politic game. Yeah, yeah, that that would that's interesting. Now, so do you think? I, I'm curious, Doctor Tashi. Do you think that it was that Doctor Gay couldn't play the political game, or that she's a black woman trying to play that political game? Like, do you, uh, I I I feel like race played a part. I mean, do you think that the Doctor Gay would still be in her position if she were, say, a white woman or a white male, with the same the same views, same everything? Yes, <laughs> I think they would have tried and found a way to work with her. I think in the end, what ended up happening is because the a, a lot of people, I don't want to say a lot, but the powers that be at Harvard were behind her initially and were defending her. I think it was her decision because it was just going to be too much for her and then for her as the president of Harvard to continue. So she's like, you know what? I'm just going to leave it. So I think there was a purposeful decision to take her well-being over that, that her well-being was more important. So I don't think that it's that she couldn't play the game because she easily, if she wanted to take this all the way to the Supreme Court, she could have. Um, what, when people want you out of something, it makes sense. They're trying to discredit you. Uh, so what they did was try to discredit what she did and they turned it. And it's, it's very interesting because to me, this looks like you've been at this for a while. <laughs> you've been trying to gather all these things for a while. And it is, it really amounts to no more than her being a political pawn. A lot of this has to deal with politics, which I can't stand, <laughs> but a lot of it deals with that. So I don't think it's that, she couldn't handle this pressure. I think that she did not want to handle the pressure because if she couldn't handle it, she wouldn't have come out and, uh, where was it, the New York Times that she had something? She would not have come out, written something in the New York Times. So, But she was like, oh, I have something for you. <laughs> so if she couldn't handle, I mm. think that this was her way of handling it. Yeah, I don't know. Did she she wrote a piece in the New York Times, Dr. Tashi? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but she wrote a piece. I think After it was she the resigned? New York Times. Yes. Oh, I'm gonna read that. I didn't. Yes, I, I'll find it yeah. and, and send it. But yeah. as we were, I was doing research for this, I came upon that because there was a statement that she wrote, and I think it was the New York Times. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. But um, yeah, so if I don't think that if she was really not wanting to fight, that she would have written anything. But she cared about her good name because that's mm -hmm. really all, what you have in this world. You have your name, you have your reputation. She cared about her reputation and she was not going to allow them to sully her reputation. And so mm. there we that's go. Her. Like, I hope she has the strength to really get over this. Um, I have like I have experienced like 10 percent of what she's probably experienced in academia. And it was tough mm -hmm. on me. So I don't understand. Like things got really hostile for her. From what I understand is that she had death threats. Police yes. had to 24 seven had to sit in front of her house and make sure that she and her family was safe. 
Hmm. Like, I think this was, what is this? This is why would, You know, I, I, I'm, I'm curious about that, right? Okay. <laughs> why, why would somebody want to kill the president of Harvard? Why? What, what you think, it, what, was it Zionists that were upset that she didn't? Because it all came back to that whole thing about that mm-hmm. war in the Middle East. And mm-hmm. the fact mm-hmm. that Bill Ackman, you know, this billionaire, who's, uh, he's a part-time prick, uh, you know, decided to use his economic power along with his his wealthy buddies to uh, go after Dr. Gay. And I believe that he just he just went after Dr. Gay because that was an easy target. Right. Like, OK, we got this black woman it's as president. People already believe that black people are not qualified. So I'm going to uh, invoke my white male privilege and my wealth privilege to create a narrative that's false. Now, what's interesting about Dr. about Bill Ackman, though, is that his wife is a professor, Dr. Tachi, I, I think you might know this, Dr. Alicia, I mentioned this to you. His wife is an MIT professor who was also, from what I understand, maybe doc, maybe one of y'all can fill me in, also accused of plagiarizing. Yeah. Similar to what they said about Dr. Gay. They, so he comes out and says this black woman was, you know, she, her, she's not qualified because she cheated and she plagiarized, which honestly, I think that's questionable. I don't think it was that deep. They did a full investigation on Dr. Gay, exactly. but his own wife, Pay attention. Listen, y'all. His own wife did the same thing. It, 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 that's mighty. That's that's mighty white. I mean, that that's that's kind of interesting, right? Uh, Doctor Tyler, the hypocrisy. Yeah, the hypocrisy of it. And did you hear? There's another instance of a university in Illinois, actually, where an art teacher um, had a class discussion about um, describing kind of what was happening in with Palestine. And there was a Jewish student in the classroom who was personally offended by um, the entire conversation in the classroom and has now filed a suit against that art teacher. The art wow. teacher sued right now. I heard it on NPR. <laughs> I heard it on NPR yeah. one morning. So that's happening right now. So I don't know, like, is, is there going to be this shift to this certain way of thinking in academia? Are they trying to like lock their rings on? As long as money is involved, sorry to interrupt, but as long as money is involved, yes. They are not the safe spaces, the uh, bastion of free thinking that people think they are. And you know, it's, it's interesting because that's the stereotype that you're able to have all these ideas. Yeah, as long as they align with uh, um, the people that are giving money to the university, all you have to do is look at any of the big athletic colleges and their alumni give back in droves. So in a sense, the, the, those boards and those alumni run the school. So when you have a setup like that, when you have a structure like that, that's very dangerous because that means you can't say what you want. You can't teach truth. You teach their truth. Yeah, and you know, it all it, it goes against um, the whole thought about academic freedom. Exactly. That's, exactly. that's what makes us unique as a country. My friend, she taught in Australia and she said, there's no academic freedom for faculty. She felt relieved coming back. You know, she said all of this socialist stuff, it sounds good on paper, but it's really constrictive because they told her what she needed to teach. Now, mind you, she had really good benefits. Um, There's a lot of wonderful things about it. But one of the things that she missed about teaching here in the United States was she said, oh, I have academic freedom. I can talk about whatever I want. She said, oh, no. Someone does your syllabus for you and tells you, here's what you lecture on and here's the information that you lecture on. She had no academic freedom. And she said it was really kind of she was a little relieved in that way to come back 
from teaching overseas because it was the socialism had, she said, was just too much for her. Mm. It looks good on paper, but when you actually live it, it ain't really that great. It was a little too constraining. And Mm. it was so fascinating because right when my dad retired, I had conversations with him. Now, mind you, he's an avid reader of the Chronicle of Higher Education. And so he has a lot of background. He had a lot of background on that. And I said, Dad, what what do you have to tell me? And he was like, academic freedom. You better hope that that stays because I see, I mean, he could see it 15 years ago that it was coming down the pipeline that the future of academia would be a challenge to academic freedom. He didn't elaborate, but he said that's going to be the challenge of higher education. Mm. Well, let, well, let me come in as, yeah. as the finance guy, right? Oh, you come know, in. As, 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 <laughs> yeah, as, as a scholar, you know, I, I can respect and appreciate Dr. Claudine Gay because, in fact, I think her field is economics and my field is finance. Finance is just applied economics. Um, I have a lot of admiration and respect for what she accomplished, even though politically we weren't on the same page. You know, um, I know she didn't support uh, what happened to the other black professors that were persecuted at Harvard, the ones that we know from Gary, uh, Alicia. And also, you know, she's got that that melanin deficient husband, which I think, honestly, that makes a difference for black people that want to rise to the top of white institutions. I believe that. Uh, but I, I don't think what happened to her was right. On the other hand, as a finance guy, I understand Bill Ackman, not, not so much that I agree with him. I don't agree with him. But what people have to understand is that in America, money is is money kind of is the God of America. You know, we're a capitalist society. And what that means is that money trumps everything, you know, and that pun is intended. Money trumps everything. Uh, you know, yeah, you can talk about equality. No money trumps equality. You can talk about, uh, you know, doing the right thing and spirituality. No money kind of ends up trumping that in a lot of these institutions. You can talk about academic freedom. No money trumps academic freedom. And so the thing about freedom of any form is that freedom has to be defended. And I believe that uh, that one of the things that one of the lessons I try to uh, invoke toward our people is the importance of understanding things like economic self-defense. Ackman is Jewish. The Jewish community understands economic self-defense at an epic level, at a supreme level. That's why they have worked so hard to control so many institutions in this country. And they control it with that with that money, with those dollar bills. HBCUs are not even controlled by black people. We don't really get to decide what those universities are going to do. Why? Well, because we can't we, we can't pay our own bills. But Ackman gets with his buddies and says, oh, you gave 100 million to Harvard. You gave 50 million to Yale. You gave what we're all and we're all protecting Israel. Oh, no, we're not. Go, we're, we're not. You can say what you want about this war, but you, you're not going to say it on a campus that we control. And so uh, so I personally think that the the smart people at Harvard and I'm questioning that I'm really I really have to say the smart people at Harvard because I, I'm used to thinking of Harvard is this great institution with all these brilliant people. I'm sitting there thinking, how smart are you when you let yourself get trapped in this situation where you're you're being pimped out of your value system? Like they they he just straight up came in there and pimp slapped you. You're sitting on process this for a minute, y'all. They're sitting on the largest endowment in the entire United States. They have a fifty billion dollar endowment. Mm-hmm. Why are you worried about losing a donor or two? That you have your endowment to protect the, the academic freedom of the institution. That's why you get an endowment. Right. So what what's going on here? You know, it's almost like if I'm worth 50 million dollars and I make and I'm going to make another another hundred thousand. And someone says, well, if you don't do what I say and violate your your fundamental, your core values, right, like like abandon your children or abandon your wife, then I'm not going to give you that hundred thousand dollars. 
it it would be weird for me to say, oh well, you know, they were gonna take away my next hundred thousand, so I had to do it. No, that's when that's when I kick in and I say, well, I've got I'm worth fifty million. I've got I I'm protected. I'm safe. I don't need your money, right? And you, and Alicia, you saw that happen when the when the thing happened where. I, I I took that stand on the on Lizzo's record label using this black woman to promote obesity in the black community as if obesity is a healthy thing, given that obesity kills black people. I said that's wrong, and you saw what happened immediately. I lost that speaking engagement with the AG Gaston Society. I was going to get ten thousand dollars. They paid me five. There was another five coming, and I was able to give them both middle fingers. Why? Well, because we because we're good. We have enough money. I don't, I'm not going to coon myself out to get an extra five grand. That's why you save money. That's why you build an endowment. So I don't understand. I'd love for Harvard to explain to me how you let this man bully you like that. And, and again, Dr. Tashi, though, to your point, if, if she quit because she just didn't want to deal with the heat, that bothers me too, because I'm kind of like, like, what did you really think was going to happen? You know, there's a reason why I would never want to be president of a university or a dean or any of that stuff, because those are hard jobs, you know? And I think it's kind of sad that she gets in there and it gets really tough. And she's like, I'm just going to quit for my mental health or whatever, whatever her reason is. I'm like, you know, you let a lot of people down. That's, that's my two you know, well, well, so two things to two, two things to that. It's, uh, it is disappointing because this is a, a prestigious, it's the first time a, a black woman has been, it's the first time a woman has been president. Am I correct? Of Harvard? Uh, I think so. Yeah. First time a woman, first time a black woman uh, has been, and a black person has been president of Harvard. So it is disappointing. But I think because part of the problem is because we also have this group mentality where when one succeeds, it's a win for everybody, which is good. But then we start to also forget that we're individuals with individual wants and needs. We are the only group of people who are never afforded individuality. So you have to stay and work someplace when until you die because black people, because you have to carry the race. And I think that's kind of unfair. I see, I understand it and I see where it comes from, but then there's never rest and things never change that way. So that's, that's one thing. And I think, and, and I don't know her, I don't know how she thought, but sometimes there's this thought process of, well, somehow it will be different for me. I, I think it, I will be the one that will make the changes and it will be different it's not going to be awful for me. So there could have been that modicum of thought process. And then you really get in there. You're like, oh, I'm not different. I'm the same Negro that, that everybody else is. So I'm not trying to say that she thought she was above. But I think that sometimes we think our accolades, uh, our work insulates us from racism, insulates us from, and it doesn't. It doesn't matter how hard you work. Think about all of us. We've all been in the... um and academia, think about all the work you put in because su subliminally you're like, oh, well, I have to show them that I can work, especially when you first get a, a position, right? So you're there on Sunday. Let me tell you, I was doing communication, but I'm also a dancer. So for free, I was also choreographing for the fall and spring shows there on Sundays when no damn body else was there. So it was me and one Jewish professor, that was it. Everybody else was at home doing whatever. So I was there. And you're trying to prove, but did that stop? Now, I had a great experience at that university, but yeah, there were microaggressions. Because I spent all my time doing all this, did that insulate me from that? No. So I promptly told them off after because I'm like, well, then fire me because I don't care. 
<laughs> so it didn't matter to me. But I think I think that's those are the two things I wanted to bring up that we're not afforded individuality and we feel beholden to stay in positions that are not healthy for us because we're trying to be good examples of black people. Um, and then my other point. So, <laughs> you know what? I, I think you're 100 percent correct. Um, yeah, I, I, I like what you talk about is um, uh, Dr. Tashi's what I refer to as the. Uh, the magic Negro theory where we, we believe that I, you know, I'm the magic Negro who is not, who's immune to racism because my credentials are so good and I'm the first qualified black person they've ever run into. Mm -hmm. And that feeds into another myth that uh, and a lot of institutions use this with a straight face. They'll literally say, we've searched high and low to find qualified black people. We just can't find them anywhere. And we found you and that's, you know, and that's such a, a disrespectful thing to say because how in the world are you going to tell me that there's, there's this job that's been done by thousands of white males and, and thousands of white females. And you can't find one black person on the planet qualified to do that job uh, that you, you might as well call me a gorilla, you know, like, like, like almost like you're happy because you found a monkey that can ride a bicycle. You know, it's, it's, it's insulting. And I personally think that we, and I, and I, and we've all gone through it, you know, like a lot of people that have been following me for a while, they know about my battle at Syracuse and, and what kind of happened there. And I remember, I remember kind of just saying to them, you know, my, my whole tenure situation came down to, Again, them seeking to explain why they didn't give me tenure, because at that time they had to explain it because I was the most well-known faculty member on the entire campus. Uh, so, so they were like, oh, he didn't do this and he didn't do that. And so when the reporters would call me and interview me, like from the Chronicle of Higher Ed and all that, I literally just surrendered and said, let's assume I'm not qualified. Let's just assume because I don't even want this job anyway. I'm going to go do something else. Right. That, that was when I started thinking about doing the stuff I do now. I said, now, now that we've concluded that I'm not qualified. I want you to put the spotlight on them. Don't just put the spotlight on me. Don't have don't be questioning my credentials and all that anymore. Let's assume I have no credentials. Let's look at their hiring record. How many black people have they hired? How many black people have they promoted? Look at their record. I said they have a hiring record that is worse than the KKK. And and and, and you need to call that out too because because that's what happens. They they get black people they make us crazy. You become schizophrenic damn near because I, I don't know if it's the right diagnosis, babe. You, I'm going to let you talk so you can tell, but, but it's something or paranoid or something where they, they will nitpick if they want to get rid of you. If they don't want you on that job. Everybody let me know if you know what I'm talking about. If they don't really want you on that job, they can always find something that you didn't do right. Or, you know, and, and, and then you're like, well, maybe I, I didn't do enough or maybe I did, you know, I should have gotten this degree or done this and done that. No, you ain't doing that to me. You are not gonna go through and find do a, use a fine tooth comb on me that you would never use on yourself. The white boy ain't got to go through the fine tooth comb procedure, and would, neither am I, because I know that I am somebody. Jesse Jackson told me that when I was a baby, and and you ain't gonna talk me out of it. So so that was that's the position I had to take, and it sucked because I didn't want to fight with my institution like that. I kind of wanted. I want us to live happily ever after, you know, like, like I appreciate you, you appreciate me. And that's real diversity. When somebody comes in with a different point of view and you embrace a different perspective, you say, we're going to learn from each other. Okay, cool. But we, but that's not what diversity looks like, uh, uh, Alicia. It seems to me, babe, that, that for many white institutions, diversity is basically like, we'll hire a couple of token black people as long as they do what we say and act just like us. If you bring anything here that is different or doesn't fit into our cultural norms, then we're going to flick you up out of here. What do you think? 
You are muted. Oh, that's right. I muted you because you had the echo. Go go ahead, babe. I'm sorry about oh, that. I had an echo. Okay. No, yeah. I mean, I think that it's healthy paranoia. The paranoia that you're talking about, I teach this in my class that this is healthy. We're reading a book, Henrietta Lacks, The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. We're reading that. We're reading that book in my research class. <laughs> And we talk about, yeah, so we're talking about that and the students have to write a whole paper on healthy paranoia that Black people have of the medical profession and of therapists and how it is not something detrimental. It's actually a survival mechanism and it should be seen as a strength that is a normal reaction to oppression and marginalization. Um, so yeah, healthy paranoia for sure. You know, and I think at Harvard, I want to talk about Harvard a little bit. I'm, I got from Harvard that there's a little bit of infighting going on. And I wonder if where there's this like push toward what Ackman way of thinking, we'll just put it there. There's also this counter push because voice, I sent you that TikTok that I just thought was amazing. Of mm -hmm. uh, They put out this study about black women in corporate America, but they're really talking about if underneath it, they're really talking about black women in all different systems. And they were talking about the microaggressions and the fact that black women are black women. And that's the intersectionality voice, the intersectionality of race and gender, because it was unique to black women in corporate situations where they were like one of the only, they were in teams and they were the only black person in those teams that their turnover rates were much higher, significantly higher. And also they hit a glass ceiling. They were not even looked at. Their leadership skills wasn't even looked at as something desirable. So there's something wrong with them. So the people who stayed can only go but so far. And some of the people who could see the writing on the wall left. And this happened only with African-American women. Disproportionately. Mm. And so I do think like studies like this was so important for me to see because I know there's people and there are and I have to tell you, there are white people who dedicate their lives to researching this. Thank God for them. These are people who have confronted their own issues with racism and white supremacy. You have to understand we live in this world that is based on values of the dominant culture. And the mm -hmm. dominant culture is racism and white supremacy. That's the dominant culture. So for a lot of white individuals who understand this, you have to consciously erase a lot of that. So I'm not saying that it's, it's the end of the world and that all white people are this way. You are seeing some groups of white people who are standing up and, and talking about these things in the way that is very scientific. And that's what we need. We need some science behind this. I love science. I love numbers. I love all of that kind of stuff. So well, spe speaking of science and numbers, um, yeah. I want, I'm going to show that video that you were talking about. And also before I do that, could everybody please uh, hit the thumbs up button, thumbs up, share, subscribe. You're watching drboystv.com, the home for intelligent black people. My name is Dr. Boyce Watkins. I'm speaking with my lovely wife, Dr. Alicia Watkins, as well as uh, Dr. Tashi. Uh, Dr. Tashi is the founder of, give me the name of your company, Dr. Tashi. Indie Soup Media. Indie Soup Media, and um, and everybody should needs to go follow Dr. Tashi and also follow uh, Dr. Alicia, coachingwithdralicia.com. And also, uh, don't forget that tomorrow morning, everybody, we're doing financial consciousness training uh, in the Black Business School. If you would like to join us, we meet every morning at 10 a.m. Eastern. Uh, you can go to uh, drboyceelevate.com. And uh, tomorrow, what we're going to break down is 
how corporations trick you into buying luxury items, how they trick you out of your money. So we're talking about financial consciousness and we're doing this every day. It's a very popular class. Everybody loves it. So you're welcome to join us. Just go to drboyceelevate.com. Okay. So let me play this clip. Dr. Tashi, I'm going to play the clip and let you comment on this first. And then Dr. Yeah. Leisha, I'm sure you got something to say because you sent me the video. This is apparently a study from Harvard and uh, it involves what Dr. Alicia was just referring to. So here is the clip. Here we go. And, and everybody that watches the clip, do me a favor. Let me know if you can hear it. Give me a yes that the audio is coming through so I can know that uh, it's playing. OK, here we go. How do career outcomes differ for employees of different races and genders and what might cause those differences in the workplace? So this is a study that's co-authored uh, with two incredible colleagues, um, Dr. Sanaz Mobasri from BU and, and Dr. Nina Rossi uh, from MIT. And we came together to study uh, essentially how having more white coworkers affects uh, employees of color differentially by race and gender in a large elite professional services firm. And we look at how promotion and turnover looks different by race and gender for 9,000 new hires across the firm. First, we document that uh, there is a very large turnover and promotion gap. So black employees are about 30% more likely to turn over in their first two years. They're about 26% less likely to be promoted on time. There are many reasons why uh, you might see differential turnover or differential promotion. We focus on the role of coworkers. So we look at whether or not the race of your coworkers in your first few teams um, has an influence on whether or not you get promoted or uh, you turn over early. And what we find is a particularly strong effect for black women. So there are many reasons why we might see these outcomes for black women in particular. Um, there are studies that look at um, diversity in general or look at what it means to be amongst people who look more like you or less like you. But what we find in this study is that there is a specific double disadvantage for people who are both black employees, um, a racial minority, and women, a gender minority. The results suggest that these effects are larger for, for black women. We can't dig into exactly, you know, all the reasons why that might be the case. But other literature suggests that racial and gender minorities might have different stereotypes around them in work, might face different types of disadvantages based on cultural foreignness or beliefs about whether or not they belong in specific types of uh, work environments. Really, this is just documenting the facts um, and I think is encouraging more research about why these um, really significant effects persist for Black women specifically, even though other groups that are similar in terms of size are not facing those same challenges. A lot of firms and a lot of research has really focused on what we call pre-hire factors. So how do you fix the quote-unquote pipeline uh, to get more people into, uh, into these uh, elite high-wage firms? But if you think about it, uh, just bringing new and different people into a firm without changing the workplace itself might not be the most sustainable strategy. And that's really what we see in our work. Yes, people might be coming through the door that look different, but if they're leaving at higher rates and not getting promoted at higher rates, you're essentially not solving the fundamental problem within the workplace. It is certainly important uh, and critical that we continue to do work to understand um, barriers to recruitment and selection. I think it's time that we also place emphasis on the day-to-day -day interactions that people have at work, what's happening in teams, even seemingly neutral uh, processes and procedures like who is staffed with whom end up having effects on, on who stays in the firm. How do career outcomes differ for employees
Uh, that's me messing up the technology again. All right, so Dr. Tashi, uh, you first. Uh, what what did you see in that video? What 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 came to mind? Definitely, when she talked about the retention part of it, that's the huge thing because you can you can dump a whole bunch of uh, diversity in any company, in any firm, any university. But if there are not strategies to keep these individuals there because it's a toxic work environment or the culture is not uh, amenable for that facil facilitates them staying, of course they're going to leave. So you've got, that's not success if you ask me. If you take in people and they don't stay, that's not success. I mean, and you know that even from a, a university perspective, you could take, you want to have uh, graduates that come out of your institutions and not just people coming in and then they leave without achieving the end result of a degree, right? So it's the same thing here. Even though you're not necessarily trying to get a degree from a, a workplace, you are trying to get to a level or a degree of uh, work, right? You're trying to get to a level of professional development. And if you end up leaving because of toxic workplace, uh, because of not identifying with your workplace, because of those factors, then it's not a success. So the thing that really stood out to me about that was definitely uh, that. It's like, I'll give an example. It's like, you know, the big thing now is uh, ever since the year of return is so many people want to go to Ghana to, to live in Ghana, right? Maybe retire in Ghana. So two ends to this. If Ghana has the same system and obviously there is some corruption and we could talk about how colonialism had their, their hand in that, but there is some corruption. You can have all of African America come to Ghana, but if they have not fixed the structure of Ghana, people are going to leave disappointed. Likewise, on the other end of that, if people that are looking to go to Ghana have not done the work to get rid of uh, trauma that makes them want to leave, you're taking that same trauma and breaking the system, right? Mm. So more, uh, more towards the other end of it, but it, it's a cooperative thing. So that just that's an example that uh, reminds me of okay. of this that in order to retain people, there has to you have to change the workplace culture to be someplace that people want to work and feel included. And you have to have a, a system to retain them. To me, they're not trying. I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? Um, that's a great point, Dr. Uh, Tashi just made, babe. Because remember when I went to Ghana and I love Ghana and the Ghanaian people were amazing and, and I had a wonderful time. But, woo, buddy, I had a hard time adjusting to the concept of time. Like I went to a restaurant and I think it took six hours for me to get my food. And uh, and I called you and I was hungry and pissed Only we, called, we called we called in our order in advance and I couldn't believe it. And it wasn't just one restaurant. It was several restaurants. And I remember thinking, OK, maybe something's wrong with me, but I don't have the patience to wait six hours to get my food. I can't I can't I don't I just that, you know, and um, and so, you, you know, but but you're right, though, Dr. Tashi. Is it you know it's not just a matter of the environment changing. We have to adjust, right? That's to me that's just the nature of integration. If you mix hot, cold, and uh, hot and cold water, the hot gets colder and the cold gets hotter, right? So so everybody has to. It's a compromise, right? Yeah. So uh, so Dr. Alicia, I I I I want to get your thoughts on the video and what Dr. Tashi said, and just um, I wonder if you when you're thinking about 
us descendants of slaves integrating into these spaces where they spent 400 years hating us. We spent 400 years de- coping with the fact that they hate us so much. If that's if that blend is just, you know, like oil and water, if it's just not really going to work that well, you know, I don't know. I because I, I, I know the trauma responses for me definitely wherever you 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 and I were friends when I was at Syracuse, and you you would probably diagnose my reaction to them as a trauma response. I was ready to fight. But so so I don't know. So give me your thoughts on some of that. I mean, that's the thing. The thing with race-based trauma is that it's not a single incident, it's an accumulation of a bunch of different historical incidents, historical and history to your own timeline. Like there's historical trauma, right, uh, slavery, but there's also like me, you know, growing up in Gary, Indiana and Tuskegee and uh, just my own history. These sort of instances is just it's it's race based trauma because you have these reactions because it's reminiscent of other things that you've experienced. But I think with this video, the most and I hope, boys, you put the link to the video in the notes, the show notes, because I'd like for people to take a look not only at the video, but the comments. Mm-hmm. It was very sad to read those comments. Um, it just became apparent and beautiful in and of itself because you felt like you weren't alone, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but the comments signified how unwelcome these environments are and how the chilly climate of corporate educate like people were putting in and in well personally i kind of felt like okay water is wet this is water is wet analysis like we've been saying this for years like we've been talking about this for a long time yes thank you very much harvard for pointing out things that we all knew already you know i don't know they do this study not for us necessarily they do this study just to kind of put it out there so that other people can look at it too but the comments I mean, people were writing in their comments. I wish I can give this to my um, to my boss so they can read what I go through, so they can understand what I go through on a day to day basis. And then underneath that comment was just like, "Yeah, but even if you send it to them, they still not gonna do anything." Like it was <laughs> the saddest thing. There was other comments like, "Well, maybe we need to send this video to the HR director and send it to HR and have them look at it." And then a comment underneath that was. I work in HR. Trust me, they don't care about <laughs> about trying to have no diversity, equity, and include. They don't care about anything. <laughs> it just was a sad display of comments, and you see everybody. The comments were just amazing, and how everybody chimed in, and I could see the faces of the people on TikTok. They're young faces. These are these are young people just entering into this corporate environment after we spent all this money on our education, what are we going to do? We can't quit. We are, we got student loans. We got bills to pay. We can't just up and walk away. So you do feel like Lord Monday morning, I just got to suck it up, put my outfit on and put a fake smile on my face and I have to do it. So mm-hmm. that's my comment. <laughs> well, you know what it, uh, it, it the other day, uh, babe, you, you remember when I took the baby Taylor to see Willy Wonka, uh, with her her friend and and um and I I was in the car and and I you, you're not gonna really hang out with me with, if you're a kid without getting getting some kind of knowledge or lesson or something I can't help it it's just a habit so I I I pointed out to them after they came out and we're talking about how great the movie was I said do you remember the part where where they got Willy Wonka to sign that contract and he was in all this debt and so they forced him into slavery to repay the debt 
And they were like, yeah, that was crazy. I said, yeah, that's kind of that's that's kind of like what student loans do to like a lot of Americans. They 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 catch you when you're 18 years old and you you sign this contract and then you owe all this money because you paid, you know, a quarter million dollars for a thirty thousand dollar education. Right. Significant overpricing. Right. We know the inflation of college tuition far exceeds uh, American inflation. And then you're under all this debt and then you're like stuck and you you're committed to this system. And and I, I personally think we should not just be angry at the people who run the system. I'm also I would also be angry at the people who told you that this was the way to go, that I would never in good conscience tell a black person that they should just grow up and, you know, try to go work for white people for their entire life because you're committing them to a lifetime of significant stress, frustration, racial trauma, microaggressions, mistreatment, abuse. Why would we sign up for that? I, I know why we sign up for that, because, number one, we we believe the myth <clears throat> when they tell us, oh, no, racism is in the past. No, it's not. It's in the present. Uh, also, uh, we we, uh, we we white folks have a lot of money. Uh, we also I think we like white people. We really we hate them. What we love. We're not going to say hate them. We we're, we get mad about racism, but we really kind of want to be next to white. Like that's what the, that was the crux of integration, Dr. Tashi, to me, when, when they taught us about integration, it was like. We're better off because white people let us go to their schools. They let us shop at their malls. They let us live in their neighborhoods. And it's evil for us to even think that it makes sense that we'd want to live away from them. Like, why would you not want to be around Europeans? Right. That that's what that's that. So the brainwashing starts early. Yeah. And I, I'm 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 not for any of it at all. I think we got to It's uh, so I think it's up to us to fix this. What what do you think, Dr. Tashi? So this it's interesting that you say that because one of my favorite professors uh when I was in the doctoral program at Howard was Dr. Richard Wright. First I loved all my, my professors. Howard was just life-changing. But uh Dr. Richard Wright um was one of my professors and he was just absolutely um uh, amazing. So it's interesting that you were, I lost my train of thought. Say what you just said again, uh, Dr. Boyce. Oh, I, Last I, thing. I, 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 I say, I, I said a lot cause I talk too much, but basically integration's a myth. This, this yeah. false idea that we want to be around people that don't like us, that, that doesn't even make yes. any sense. That's a okay. self-esteem issue, but please yes. go ahead. So, um, my point of bringing up Dr. Wright was because he grew up in Washington, D.C. So he was a native Washingtonian. And he was telling us that he had one of the best educations ever, even though it was segregated for most, most of when, uh, when he was growing up, because he was taught by PhDs. Because they went to a lot of these colleges, maybe up north, and then they came back and they could not get jobs at these universities. So what did they end up doing? They ended up teaching in D.C. public school systems and all these public school systems around the country. So you were being taught by Ph.D.s. What we pay through the nose for now was something that was standard back then. So so it's interesting that you you say that. I think part of it though is the, the with us though is the whole ice is colder thing. Mm -hmm. And regardless of what we do it, and I just you I keep bringing up HBCU because this is where I see it a lot. The moment somebody goes and you know all of the a lot of these Ivy Leagues especially like Harvard Business School they have all these certificate programs. Mhm. Mm mm -hmm. I, you have never seen black people happier than when they get ex accepted to one of these cockamamie programs. Forgive me, 
but I think they're cockamamie. They they cockamamie. Get, That's an awesome word. Keep yes, going. It's true. It's true. They get accepted to one of these cockamamie programs. And like, and they post, I just got accepted. Which you didn't get accepted to Harvard. You just got accepted into the certificate program. But they're so proud. And I'm yeah. not saying not to be proud of that. But they're prouder of that cockamamie certificate than they would be to have a degree from FAMU or something like that. So we have a skewed sense of what is important as well. It's that whole, we've bought into the ice is colder and I get where it comes from. But at what point do we stop believing that? At what point do we take uh, destiny into our own hands and say, our ice is colder? Mm -hmm. Well, you know what? And I, and I think that, um, and actually, before I make my point on that, I want to ask everybody, could you please hit the thumbs up button, thumbs up, share, subscribe. We are here. I'm here with Dr. Tashi, uh, who is the founder of Indie Soup Media. Did I say it right? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, and everybody needs to follow Dr. Tashi. You see how smart she is. Follow the follow the smart people too. Don't just follow the rappers and 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 whoever and the, and the comedians. I need y'all to follow the smart people that actually have good ideas. And Dr. Tashi has a PhD in communications and mass media, and uh, she's 100% pro black and uh, and just an awesome person. And then also there's my wife, Dr. Alicia Watkins. Her website is coaching with dralicia.com. Uh, she's a licensed therapist and a full professor of social work, and uh, actually the only faculty member in the history of her institution to get a Fulbright scholarship. So everybody clap for smart black women out here. That's what we got to <clears throat> cheer on. And uh, also my name is Dr. Boyce Watkins and uh, I have a couple of new books out. One is called um, uh, uh, The Ten Commandments of Black Economic Power, which is a bestseller at, on Amazon. So if you'd like to get a copy, you can go to drboycebooks.com. I also have financial flashcards that we created to teach black children about wealth. Uh, so so it seems to me, and, and I think we can wrap it up and I'm gonna let you ladies get the last words, but it seems to me that, 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 that we're really talking about the necessity of a paradigm shift, not so much in a matter of, I mean, we all can agree. Okay. White folks have to change what they do to us and with us in these institutions. I don't think, I think all of us agree that what they're doing is wrong. What these institutions are doing is wrong, but we can't control that. You know, I, I can't, you know, white folks going to keep on being white until they decide they want to change. And so until that time occurs, we can change what we do, right? So I believe, uh, and, and I'll start with you, uh, Dr. Alicia, I believe that we have enough that we can do in terms of establishing our own self-esteem, you know, and, and us uh, instilling our own values with our kids. I, I think when, when Dr. Tashi said that thing about how excited we are when institutions from other communities accept us, that speaks to me to a self-esteem issue. Right. Like like nothing that I have is valuable. The, the only way I'm valuable if, if, is if I'm validated by you and and waiting on validation from your oppressor is to me a very dangerous place to be, you know, because your oppressor can hold that validation over your head like a little carrot. Like, OK, <clears throat> if, you, if you don't do what I say, boy, you're, I'm going to take away your labels and then you're going to feel bad about yourself. Right. And And that to me speaks to something deeper than just. An economic issue. It speaks to self-esteem. And uh, I believe your self-esteem should be given to you by your parents. And I think that when our kids are growing up, I don't know if we spend enough time helping them understand that there's no cooler, better, more relevant place you can be on this planet than in your own community. You know, there's no business you can be associated with more valuable than your, a business in your community run by people that look like you or your own family members. That's a value that I think our kids should be taught. Uh, what do you think, uh, Dr. Alicia, in terms of 
kind of moving forward, like how to navigate, like if you're going to talk to your younger self about, you know, what you've seen and, and how things work, what, what steps would you change? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I do, you know, I am kind of thinking about it now, like, gosh, do I stay in my current institution or do I look to get a position at an HBCU? I don't know what the future will hold for me. Um, and I think what's interesting about the esteem, the self-esteem piece, I left Gary, Indiana, feeling really good and competent and just being in an environment. I don't think it was intentionally done this way, but being in an environment where I saw very little, I saw people who look like me succeeding. And, you know, every time in between semesters when I would come home and I don't know if people, um, if all of you are who are tuning in today, if this has happened to you when you were in college, you go to a PWI and you just kind of feel kind of worn out and you feel alone. And then you go home and you get a bunch of hugs and love from your family at Thanksgiving. And it's like it filled me up with so much more so that I can go back and I can take my finals and I can feel like I have some esteem. I can actually do it. So it was like coming home for spring break and coming home for Thanksgiving, that was always like the moment where everybody was proud of me. It wasn't like I was the first person in college. There were other people giving me encouragement. I may have felt a little lonely at times, but I felt the love from my family. And that's what got me through that university. And I'm, it's not, it's not like I'm very happy. I went to Indiana. I'm very happy. I had those experiences, but but it was just something that I felt like I really needed. And I saw so many black students like not get through the program. And I think it was because they just didn't have like that sort of support. You just kind of feel lost at these white institutions. Like I didn't understand anything that the, the professor says. I don't feel comfortable talking to white people. I don't know if I should go to their office hours, how welcoming these things are. So these are very real things that happen. Um, I want to end on, Boyce, you talked about how you really killed the move for Taylor and her friend <laughs> by saying, this is what your future going to look like. I'm like, I bet they no, were. No, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I always provide a solution. <laughs> I, I, no, no, no. If I, if I kill <laughs> one dream, I got to help you build another one. So no, I, I did not know. They, they felt empowered. I, I did not. Mm -mm, yeah. No. So they did feel empowered. Why, boys? Because you talked to them about entrepreneurship. It was a wonderful teachable moment. Mm -hmm. And I was happy to hear you because I, I wasn't there. I didn't even know he was taking them to the movies. But not at all. once I realized the conversation in the car, like they were probably felt very much empowered to want to do their own thing, to get on YouTube and to do skits and to, you know, follow their passion because they're too beautifully talented. We've seen them in action, haven't we, boys? They're wonderfully talented individuals. And so um, I think it was motivating for them. It was a great illustration. That movie was a wonderful illustration as motivation for, for young people to want to go off on their own and create their own. So that they, can, they can appreciate their own talent. And if you're really true to what you want to do, everybody else can see that and they'll be inspired by that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think that, um, 2024 has just been so wonderful. I've been sitting here eating my little popcorn, watching all this truth come out. I mean, this is, let me, I told Boyce this morning, I said, if you told a lie back in the eighties, that lie is about to be uncovered. Like no lie is about to be hidden anymore. It is all opening up <laughs> and people are going to have to face the music. 
And um, and I'm here for it. I think this is wonderful. Let's expose all of this. It's time for things to be exposed. It's time for people to tell their truth. We got some very courageous black people who have, against odds, come out and said a lot of things that have been happening to them that they've been holding on to and they feel like they just can't hold on to it anymore. Cat Williams. Um, there was another video I sent you of Robert Glasper. He was spilling the tea on his his um, interaction with Lauren Hill. I mean, he is, oh. yeah, it is like people are telling it like it is. And I'm, I really am all for it as long as it's done in a way that's respectful. I think all of us have our own stories that I think need to be shared and um, we need to set the record straight on a lot of things. So I'm, I'm enjoying this. Well, you know what, Dr. Tashi, what I, 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 I agree with Dr. Alicia. I'm definitely enjoying this, but I'll also say that um, some of it, um, I think some of the, the back and forth kind of hinges yeah. on uh, being almost a little bit immature and counterproductive and, yeah. You know, and um, and I, I, I don't I personally don't enjoy watching a bunch of 50 year old black men screaming and hollering at each other on the Internet. I think that that's yeah. kind of, you know, kind of whiny and weird and whatever. But, um, you know, and I think also when somebody is screaming like I'm telling the truth, it's fine. The truth is finally out. No, you're telling me your version of a story yeah. and that story ain't nobody ever going hardly hardly ever tell a story yeah. where they're the villain the villain will never tell a story where they're the villain. They're always the hero in their own story. Mm -hmm. So when I hear stories, I'm like, Oh, okay. So this is your perspective on what happened. This doesn't mean you were a victim of anything. This, this, this is just a story. Right. And, and so, so I, I, I get it. It's the internet. Everybody's got a microphone now and uh, everybody gets to talk, but I don't know, Dr. Tashi, I would imagine if I'm in your shoes and I'm trained on communications and mass media, you went to school for this. You got a whole PhD and how to properly disseminate qualified information that's been fact checked and everything else. It's got to be infuriating to you that, you know, that most of 99.9% .9 of us would never even have a platform as big as Shannon Sharp, you know, who was a football player who decided after football was done. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I could be a journalist, too. Right. I, again, no disrespect to him, of course, but that's yeah. got to be tough for for people like yourself that really, really went to school for this and really, really work hard to make sure that, you know, before fact is released, that it's properly vetted. What do you, what do you think? You, you know, I've stopped being offended and infuriated by those types of things because at the end of the day, nobody cares that I have a PhD. Nobody cares that I'm a journalist. They, 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 they don't, they just don't. So I could sit here and complain about, people like Shannon Sharp and all the people who have like millions of followers getting, you know, shine or I too can get on there and have a counter narrative that not saying that he's not telling the truth, but I'm just mm -hmm. saying yeah, I could get on and have a counter narrative and present truth. Now I may never reach the numbers that he, I, I don't even know where that video is now. Last I checked, it was like at 14.7 million. I'm sure it's much higher now. Um, but I take this as a positive, not because I like to see black people screaming on each other or anybody screaming on, on each other. But to me, what I took out of this is this is proof that you can have alternative systems to traditional media and still get your message out there. That mm. 14 point whatever million 
is way more than would watch an average television show. You might get, if you get 2 million people watching a television show on like ABC or something, that, that's incredible. Nobody does that. So that to me is testament to the point, to the point that it is doable that we don't have to continuously beg people to put us on. We don't have to beg for uh, um, all these things. I've been to so many pitch conferences and pitch summits where people, rather than create their own thing, they clamor after all these networks. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but they're like, if they don't get on, they don't do anything. Well, why don't you produce it yourself? Raise the mm. money and produce it yourself. So I, this, I hope, lets people know, yes, it's kind of unfair because it's Shannon Sharp and he does have some following, but it lets you know that it is possible. So I hope that we take this and see the possibilities and say, I too can have a platform. Now, the other end of this is, can we study the craft and learn how to do it well so that we're doing it right? But I'm hopeful that people who do care about the craft are going to study it, learn it, and get just as big. Mm. Well, you know what? You you have a great point. I mean, again, um, whether you like what Shannon's doing or not, uh, the reality is that the world is changing, media is changing, it's been democratized significantly. And and uh, I was at Syracuse for a lot of years, and I met a lot of students in the media school. And I and, I, and even back in 06, 07, I was telling them, I said, you know, I think this thing called the internet is going to change everything. You know, this was the early stage. I'm talking about YouTube. 99% of all the people that have YouTube channels now did not have YouTube channels in 2006, 2007. Right. And I, and I remember when, as I was exiting, I, I theoretically in my head, I said, if this scales, this is going to really change everything. And I said, so, so I, I told the students, I said, the biggest liability you have is that a lot of the people teaching you about journalism were trained in the seventies and the eighties. They cut their teeth, you know, when media was very different. Now I encourage you to be creative and entrepreneurial especially if you're black. And so uh, so to just sort of close off on that, um, you know, and it connects to the conversation I was having with with our with our youngest. Uh, I wasn't so much saying you should be an entrepreneur. I was saying you should always have options. Right. Uh, you know, being an entrepreneur is different from having options, having the option to do different things or to be an entrepreneur is 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 it, what, it, what it means is that you might have a job. You might go the traditional route. But you always know you have a plan B. And I think that for PhDs and scholars like us who spend all our time getting all this skill at a very high level, you know, it's it's crazy to me how they convince us to focus on one tiny skill that has one application where there's only one in, one set of institutions that will hire us. You know, and, and then if you can't get a job at one of those institutions, you feel like you're worthless and I'm like, no, you have a whole PhD. That that's supposed to mean that you're smart, right? And if you're really smart, the the challenge that this was the challenge I gave myself is I said, well, if I'm really as smart as I think I am, then sm my intelligence should mean I should be able to adapt and go be successful anywhere. And if I can't go be successful anywhere, maybe I'm not as smart as I think, right? You know, like I, I'm sorry if if you're P if you're a whole PhD and and you're making the same amount of money as somebody that works at Burger King. That probably means that you have other skills out there that you need to go sharpen in order for you to get what you want out of life. It's out there for you. America's the richest country in the world. There's there's different ways to skin that cat. Don't wait for these institutions to open doors for you. It, it, you know, if I, sometimes you have to build a door. So <laughs> I, I built the door and I walk through that door every day. <laughs> and, and my wife saw me building that door. And, and I'm and, you know, and I and, and, and all these um, this this oppression that we experience in these institutions that 
I don't even know anything about that anymore. Like, you know, in our space, what we, you know, what me and my wife want to do, that, that's what, that's what goes, you know, and Indie Soup Media, if Dr. If, if you're not on Dr. Tashi's team, you, you're going to be out of there. Right. So, so to, and remember every great institution starts off small. It starts off as something that, you know, when Walmart started, it was, it was nothing. When Apple started, it was just a little company in somebody's garage, but somebody had to believe in the vision, pour into the vision and value the vision enough that they're not going to abandon the vision so they can go work for somebody like Steve Jobs and the guys that started Apple, you know, they had plenty of other opportunities they could have pursued, but they said, no, we're going to pour into Apple. Bill Gates said, no, I'm going to pour into Apple. Mark Zuckerberg said, no, I'm going to stick with this Facebook thing and see where it goes. So I encourage everybody in here as we close out, you know, love the, love that little vision of yours. You create options for yourself. Don't wait for Massa to open doors for you. If they don't treat you right, treat yourself right. There's a, there's always somewhere out there that you can go where you will be valued, where you can have what you want, and you can have the success that you deserve. You just have to see it the way I see it, okay? So, or the way it meaning I see greatness in you. I want you to see greatness in yourself. That's what I mean by that. Okay, so I want to say thank you very much to Dr. Tashi. There is her Instagram. Can y'all give me a yes and let me know y'all going to go follow Dr. Tashi? Put a yes in the chat if you can go follow Dr. underscore Tashi. I'm saying that for everybody that's listening on Spotify. If you go to Spotify and Apple and look up Voice Watchers, you can find the podcast there. So everybody, give me a quick yes if you can go follow Dr. Tashi on Instagram and give this sister some love. If you see people doing com commentary online, like hit go. it don't take nothing for you to hit the like button, make a quick little comment, give a fire emoji, just do something to show that you're there and you're present and and you and we love you we respect you we appreciate you and i want to say thank you dr tashi uh for for coming in thank yes, you and, yes for sure and also my wife dr alicia okay i got to show respect to the queen so uh my 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 wife uh thank you very much babe for hanging out with me her website is coaching with dr alicia.com also on instagram you can follow her at coaching with dr alicia and uh she has lots of great uh stuff out there that can help you if you're she's certified in trauma healing right? a lot of us need to heal from our trauma uh, i encourage you to look into that i'm, I'm healing from mine I, i'm not done yet i'm still working on that and uh and so i want to say thank you for helping me with that and also if you're interested in taking a look at what she does uh just go to coaching with dr alicia.com all right everybody well have a good day thumbs up thumbs up share subscribe my name is Dr. Boyce Watkins, and uh, don't forget, tomorrow morning, we're going to do financial consciousness training at 10 a.m. We do this every single morning, uh, seven days a week. If you'd like to join us for financial consciousness training, uh, just go to drboyceelevate.com. I'll put the URL on the screen. It's drboyceelevate.com. I guarantee you're going to love it. So have a good night, everybody. God bless you. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye.